these prayer requests before you, knowing that you are more than able to handle anything that that we are going through, anything that we are experiencing in our own lives, Lord, that you you are ultimately sovereign, Lord, and that we bring you ask us to bring these prayer requests to you and we trust them in your hands, Lord. We know that your will will be done and we know that whatever comes about will be because you have uh, ordained it to happen and we trust that you're wise and that you're loving and that you know what's best. So we leave these in your hands, Lord. Now, Lord, we come before you in Jesus' name. And, Lord, I decrease now so that you may increase. I become less so that you can become more. I pray that you would move me out of the way. Let your people not hear me or see me. But, Lord, as I have prayed week after week, month after month, and year after year, let them hear you and your word, not me. Lord, I pray that your word is clear. As I pray every week that your word is clear, let it break through any walls. Let it break through any boundaries. Let it break through any of our traditions. Let it break through even our, our misguided, self-made conceptions of who we think you are versus who you're revealing yourself to be in Scripture. Get me out of the way in that process, Lord. I pray that you would simply use this unworthy voice to speak your holy word. Lord, I, I become less that you can become more in our lives. And I pray, God, that it would be clear. Keep me from teaching error as I believe you always have. And that you've led me to deeper truth, Lord, and keep your people from believing a lie, which I believe you will do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I want to say good, a good morning to you and thank you for joining us this morning um, as we continue to go through the Gospel of John together. I am, I am so glad that you're here. I really, really am glad you're here. As I'm looking around at all of your faces, I'm glad that you're here. And I, I want to give God all of the praise, all of the glory, and all of the honor. He's the one who's only worthy of all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. And, and I do want to thank God for you. You have, uh, I believe you've heard the word of God, not the word of a man, but I believe you've heard the word of God declared by someone who is not worthy, but someone who he is called to speak his word. And I thank you that you have heard that in me there is no selfish intention. There's no selfish gain. There is no self-glorification. But rather, I have the only desire or the only desire that I have is to glorify God and to give him all of the glory and all the praise because he is absolutely worthy of all of that and also to be faithful to his word. And I pray that you recognize that, that I have no hidden agenda, that I am on an open mission and that open mission is to glorify God and to preach his word uncompromisingly. I pray that even when it makes us uncomfortable or even when we have a lot of questions, which I'm thinking, I'm hoping if you're in this church, you do, you should, you should never be in a church where you don't have any questions. If, you're, if, if it's not pushing you back to the Bible to go and, and find out for yourself, which I pray you do, then maybe I'm not doing my job. But I pray that his word is clear to you and that his word, I will pray, I pray that I never water it down for you. That I always preach concerning what he has said, even if it doesn't fit into our traditions. That I stand by a scripture that says in Romans 3, 4, let, every, let God be true and let every man be a liar. I, I yield myself to his word. 
And by the grace of God, I'll continue to do that. Faithfully preach his word. So help me, God. I will, by the grace of God, who lives or the spirit and the spirit of God who lives in me, I will stand by his word and trust that he will do the work in the hearts of men and women so that they will see and understand the truth for themselves. So. Just to say on the side note, I don't need any credentials and I don't need any following. I don't need an endorsement. I don't need to fear anyone or anything. God is with me. God is with us. I need him. I need his word. I need his spirit. I need his grace. One scripture that I've been standing on for the past few days is Matthew chapter five, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oh, that's been encouraging to me. And with that, I say to God be the glory. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. The last time that we were together, we were looking at the the incarnation. This morning, we are going to try to tackle a number of verses, but I think that we're only going to maybe get through uh, seven to eight verses. Verse 19 of chapter one. This is the testimony of John. I'm reading this morning from the New American Standard. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent him to him, priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And then he, he, they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah, the prophet said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's stop there, because I don't think I'm going to get beyond that place. You may be seated. Again, I say the last time that we were together, we were looking at the incarnation and we saw the nature of the incarnation was such that God manifested to us himself in a way that he put on display grace and truth. We saw that Jesus was the full expression of God's grace and truth in human flesh. And we saw that John was a witness to that incarnation and declared or cried out that Jesus was or is the great I am. We saw the impact of that incarnation as Jesus Christ triumphed over the law because the law was meant to bring condemnation. But Christ came to bring redemption and salvation. So, again, this morning, we're going to try to cover a large portion of Scripture, but I think we're only going to be able to get to maybe maybe 10 verses up to verse 29. So verses one through 18, we've just got done looking at verses one through 18. That is the more theological portion of this chapter of John. The verses speak about God's nature or the nature of God. They spoke about the nature of Christ. That he was God, yet distinct from the Father. That he was with God. That he was the creator. 
that he is the word incarnate, that he is the expression of God. He's the life. He's the source of all that is that all that lives. He is the light and he is the nature of God shining forth. We learned all of that in verses one through 18. John has introduced us to the nature of Christ in theological terms. And I pray that if you've missed any of those 18 verses uh, or those first sermons, that you go back and get the CDs because they're going to be important for you to get a full picture of what we've been talking about. Now, again, and I'm going to say this probably over and over again. John has a, a crystal clear purpose in why he's writing. As one preacher said about reformed preachers, he does not have a dirty little secret. He has a plan. His agenda is not hidden. It's clear. John chapter 20, verse number 31 says this. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have faith or you may have life in his name. That's why John is writing. He's writing so that you will believe there's no hidden agenda. There is no secret and it's definitely not dirty. It is a clear presentation of, I want you to see Christ so that you will believe. John is presenting, though, Christ and the evidence of Christ so that you might be saved. And he is, everything that he is doing is so that you will see Christ and believe. Okay, so he's laying out evidence. He's laying out the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. The Messiahship of Christ and all of these things are presented for the sole purpose again so that you will be saved. That's why John is writing. Now, listen, John's not going to spend too much time with the historical background of Jesus. He's not interested in that. He's not concerned with the narrative like the Gospels or like the, the synoptic Gospels are concerned with telling the whole story about Jesus. John is going to tell us one thing. And that is this. Believe in Christ. He is the Christ. You will be saved this morning. We're going to go through a lot of stuff. And so I, I a lot of numbers, a lot of all of that. I want you to hang with me. I'm going to try to take my time so that we're all on the same page. But we're going to look at the first testimony. We're going to look at three natures of the people that were in that day and then also people of this day. And we're also going to look at the first day. All right. So I think I said that the first testimony, three natures of the first day, and then also that first day. We'll get to all of those things. Hang with me. OK, don't fall asleep. Stay with me. All right. All right. Verse 19. We're going to read this again. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. And we'll, we'll get to that part in a minute. I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. They said to him, who are you? So that we may tell us who you are so that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah, the prophet said, verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him again, why then are you baptizing? If you are not the Christ, Elijah or the prophet. And John answered, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me. The thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. 
These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. If you look at verse 29 through 34, John is essentially pointing to Christ and saying he's the man. If you look at verses 35 through 37, once again, John the Baptist is pointing to Christ and saying he is the man. That's the point really of the whole gospel of John is Jesus Christ is the man. And the person who comes with that first testimony is John the Baptist. Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verse number 11. I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, think about this for just a moment. At the time that Jesus has said out of everyone who's ever been born up to that point, there has never been a greater person born than John the Baptist. That's a big statement when you think about whose mouth it's coming out of. And then also all of the people who had lived up until that time. We can think about Moses, Abraham. David, Solomon, you can even think about Alexander the Great or Socrates or Caesar Augustus. And Jesus is saying nobody is greater than John the Baptist. Now, this is an amazing statement because of this. Who John was, I just want you to think about this for a second. And if we measure John by worldly standards, if we measure John concerning Solomon or up to Solomon, we would think Solomon was a greater man than John ever was. The man lived in a desert. He had no home. He lived far from society and far from any seat of influence. He was not a great leader. He didn't have any social position. He didn't fight in any physical battles. He didn't establish any institutions. As far as we know, he had no formal education. He was not rich. He lived pretty much like a homeless man in the desert. And Jesus is saying out of every single person who's ever been born, this is the greatest man who's ever lived. As a matter of fact, as Jesus, as we, the Bible describes him, he did actually look like a poor beggar. You can read his history in Luke chapter one, but you'll see that his parents were barren. They were not able to have kids. And John is, is, is a type of miracle child. An angel came and announced the birth of John. It was told to his father, Zacharias, that John would come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And he would turn the hearts of the people to the Messiah. This is important and it's rich in history, but John, the, the apostle, is not concerned about any of this stuff. I mean, we could go through a long history, as Luke chapter one does, concerning the life of John the Baptist. But John, the apostle, doesn't care about any of that. John, the apostle, is concerned with one thing. Evidence, evidence that points to Christ being the Christ. He wants testimony. He wants witnesses because he's making a case the Apostle John is essentially in the Gospel of John, a lawyer, and everything that he is laying out before us is pointing us to evidence that Jesus is the Christ. To John, it doesn't matter what John the Baptist wore. It doesn't matter where he lived. It doesn't matter what he had or didn't have. He doesn't care about the camel's hair, the locusts and wild honey. None of those things matter. What matters to the Apostle John is this. What is the testimony of John the Baptist? What did he say? John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus, born six months before Jesus. John was waiting 30 years to start his ministry. 
Jesus was also waiting 30 years to start his ministry. Jesus is waiting in Nazareth. John is waiting in the desert. And when you look at John chapter one or Luke chapter one, after that, after Luke chapter one, John disappears essentially for 30 years. And after 30 years, the Bible says in Luke chapter three, the word of the Lord came to John. The son of Zacharias. And where is he in the wilderness? I mean, you got to kind of picture this crazy kid. Imagine if your kid was John the Baptist. All right. He's John the Baptist. And at like four years old, he's just like preaching and prophesying and telling you, the parent, to repent because something's going to happen. Right. Probably not. He didn't start his ministry until he was 30. But anyways, he came into the district all around the Jordan and began to preach baptism and the repentance and repentance for sins. And it's written in the book as it is written in the book of Isaiah. He was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord and make ready. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain will be and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. John was launched into his ministry by a word from God. John or God spoke, commissioned, called and sent him to preach. And he literally, John the Baptist, came out of nowhere. I mean, we hear about John then 30 years, nothing. Then all of a sudden there's this crazy wild man who looks like a, a nomad beggar screaming out in the wilderness, repent. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter three, five, that all people came out to see this guy. He was dynamic. He was bold. He was powerful. He was provocative. And when the religious leaders came out to to see him, he responded like this. You snakes. You brood of vipers who warn you. Can you imagine the boldness of this guy? Now, the people of that day, they fear the religious leaders. He looks at them in their face and says, you're a snake. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath that is to come. Just like every prophet before him, he was bold. But the the interesting thing was he was bold and he was popular. That usually is 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 a weird combination. You don't find bold preachers also being really popular. You find nice preachers being popular, but you don't find bold preachers being popular. And why was he popular? What was causing people to come out to this man? Here's the answer. He was pointing the people to something that they had been waiting for for hundreds, if not thousands of years. He was pointing them to the fact that the Messiah is here. So when the people are hearing the Messiah is here, what they're hearing is also that our Roman oppression, because the Jews were under the oppression of the Romans, our Roman oppression, it's over. The Messiah is here. He's going to squash them and it's not going to be here anymore. They also are hearing religious oppression. It's over We're going to be free now. And they're also hearing that Israel is going to be the man. Basically, our Messiah is going to sit on the throne. He's going to be the political leader. And anybody who comes to try to challenge us is going to be squashed by our man, the Messiah. It's almost as if they thought they had the Ark of the Covenant back into the camp again. If you've read the Old Testament, you know, man, the Ark is there. We're going to win. That's exactly what they thought was going was was happening. John was essentially a source of hope for all the people. And basically, when John is preaching, they're hearing your times of trouble are over. And who doesn't want to hear that? Who doesn't want to flock to a church where it says, hey, you're about to have victory. It's all over. Celebrate. Yes, they're all coming. They took 
And, and what, that's exactly what took the edge off of the message of repentance. John is telling everybody to repent and say, hey, if you're going to tell me that all my trouble is going to be over, I'll repent. I'll repent whatever you need me to do because you're telling me it's all done. But John took it a step further and says, okay, if you really want to repent, then be baptized. Let's be baptized so that this outward expression of your inward conviction is witnessed by everyone around you that you truly do repent and that you truly do believe. Now, this was a big deal because only Gentiles were baptized. They were only baptized as they were becoming Jews or as they began to practice Judaism. But now you have Jews coming and being baptized by John as if to say, this is a new kingdom that we know we're not a part of, but we want to be a part of. So baptize me too. It would be a disgrace for a Jew to be baptized. And they are flocking to John and saying, baptize me a disgrace because they're essentially saying that your heritage of Abraham is not enough. And they're coming and saying, I recognize it's not enough. This guy is doing something different. And he's saying the Messiah is here. So forget Abraham. I'm going with the Messiah. John was doing something revolutionary. In verses 19 through 37, we see that John preached three consecutive days. We don't know how long he was preaching. Maybe he preached from sunup to sundown. He preached to three different groups. And he emphasized three different truths about Jesus. So there's going to be a lot of threes that we deal with in the next three weeks or two weeks. But let's deal with this first three things. Number one, the character of a faithful preacher. The character of John is revealed in a very clear way. Verse 15 of chapter one. Check this out. John testified about him. He's speaking about Christ and cried out. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. This is an important statement. He existed before me. We obviously have dealt with that. He was born after me, but he existed before me. He's speaking about the eternality of Christ. But along with that statement is this. He has a higher rank than I do. Now, think about this. There was no preacher like John for 400 years. Jesus has not even made himself known yet. And he's saying this guy is way better than me. If you guys are flocking to me, wait till you hear him. I've got nothing on this guy. He's of higher rank than I am. And the people love John. And he's saying Jesus is way better than me. The high priest, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, all of the elite of the religious system, they had nothing on John. But John is saying Jesus has everything on me. Verse 27, he says, it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Untying a sandal was reserved for the lowest of slaves. And then they would wash that person's feet after they had taken off their sandal. It's for the lowest of slaves. And John the Baptist is saying, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest of slaves to do that. I'm lower than the lowest of slaves. In verse 30, he repeats what he said in verse 15. This guy's of higher rank than I am. Listen to me close. What's the character of any faithful preacher? What's the what's the character of any faithful believer? Humility. Humility is the character of any faithful believer and any faithful preacher. He sought no honor. He sought no pay. 
He wanted no accolades, no titles, no flattering words, no praise and no disciples. Look at verse 35 of chapter one. Again, the next day, John was standing with the two disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. In other words, what are you still doing here? Behold, the Lamb of God, go follow him. I'm not the one. Go follow him. What are you doing here? Later on, they said, hey, everyone's following Jesus. And he goes, I told you I'm not the Christ. Go follow him. I must decrease. He must increase. That's the man. Go. I've been preparing all of this for him. So go. They heard him and they left. John the Baptist didn't want anything. He didn't want followers, disciples. He didn't want to go and beg people to follow him and to believe what he was saying. He didn't call people on the phone and try to convince them that that he was right and that that the other people were wrong. He didn't need to do that. God's word stood for what it stood for. And he did not need to convince anybody of anything. It is what it is. I'm not going to call. I'm not going to call anybody and say, please come back. Please believe me. I don't need to do that. Why would I do that? God is in control. If they don't want to believe, if anybody doesn't want to believe, I'm not in control of that. God's in control of that. I'm not offended. I'm not worried. I'm not troubled. God is in control of that. As a matter of fact, I don't want followers. I don't want people calling me and, 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 and I don't want any of that. I want to preach his word and let his word stand on its own two feet. The mark of an insecure person is the one who has to try to gain followers. But the mark of a humble person is says, let God be God and every man be a liar and let God do what needs to be done. The faithful preacher is confident that God's word needs no convincing. It needs no urging. It needs no let me secretly tell you so that you can get it right. No, I will faithfully and a faithful preacher faithfully preaches God's word openly without any fear, without caring what anybody is going to say, because this is God's word. Not sugarcoating it, not trying to make it more digestible. It is what it is. And if you don't like it, then that's just too bad. No faithful preacher preaches God's word and does so faithfully without knowing God's word is able to stand on his own two feet. He says, I am a voice crying in the wilderness. Notice he says this. I am a voice. I'm not the voice. I'm just a voice. I'm not the voice. I'm a voice and I'm crying out in the wilderness. I don't want any honor, no titles, no money, no fame, no acclaim. I don't advertise myself. I'm only going to speak God's word. I will proclaim it. And everything that a faithful preacher does, it directs everyone to someone greater than themselves, to Christ. Everyone greater. It points Everyone to every to one that's greater than himself. We point to Christ. We point to Christ. We point to Christ. There is no one else to point to. There is no one else. And they will say people will say, well, I am pointing to Christ, but it looks a lot more like it's pointing to you. Because the person that you're pointing to looks, sounds, acts, believes, thinks just like you do. I want a God that is outside of something I can even comprehend. And that's who I follow and that's who I believe. Number two, we're going to see the character of faithless people. We're going to meet people in this opening section that uh, rejected the Lord. They were people sent 
in the verse 19 that were a delegation sent. Verse 19 says the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem. This delegation is sent from Jerusalem and Jerusalem is essentially the, the religious center of of everything that's going on in the religious world. They sent a group that's led by the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is a Jewish council of 70 elders plus the high priest. And they're basically the ones who call the shots. These Jews, and you'll see the word Jews a lot in the book of John, it's essentially talking about not ethnic Jews, although they were Jews. It's speaking about the enemies of Jesus. So whenever we see the Jews, it's speaking about that Sanhedrin. They are a Jewish group, but it's not necessarily speaking about their ethnicity as much as it is speaking about how they identify themselves as the enemies of Jesus. They are the religious establishment. Again, they are the Sanhedrin. They hated Jesus and they were ultimately responsible for handing Jesus over to be crucified. In this passage of the historical account, we're going to meet faithless people. And again, we're going to see them from beginning of this gospel to the end of this gospel 70 times. And every single time that we see them, they are opposing truth. Every single time that we see them, they are going to be opposing truth. Now, you want to think about this. How could that happen? How could they be standing in the face of truth and oppose truth? No one could say, well, maybe they must not have been able to, to see or maybe it must not have been true if they didn't believe it. But again, the other option, as you spoke about last week, is maybe they were just blind. Because you could be presented with truth all day long. And it's not that it's not true. It's just that you're blind. That's a huge option. You could shine the brightest light in a blind person's face and they won't squint. They won't be bothered by that light because they can't see anyways. Only the blind person could stand face to face with the sun and the son of God and not be moved by his brightness and his glory. And what a shame. Faithless people are the ones that no matter how many times you show them the truth, and do so with patience, they still do not believe and they still will not hear. They are the ones who don't realize that everything that they've learned up until this point is to give them or to lead them into a deeper understanding of who God really is. But they refuse to listen because their hearts are hard. Some people love their traditions more than they love the truth. Some people love their own idea of who God is rather than who God really is. That's their character. They're faithless. They want to talk about faith all day long, but faith in God is not faith that God has shown himself to that his people should have. Or basically, they believe that faith should be a certain way rather than the way that God has described it. They imagine God to be like themselves, and that's the only God that they can live with because that's the only God that makes them comfortable. They are faithless people. Think about this. Christ came to reveal himself. And when he came and revealed himself, he was eating and drinking along with sinners. Think about this. Christ, the Messiah, eating and drinking along with, with, with sinners, hanging with tax collectors and prostitutes. They found that uh, the Romans were still in power and that he was also talking about being crucified. This is the way that Jesus Christ revealed himself. And because he had revealed himself in that way. Many people rejected him because he did not fit into the Messiah box that they made for him. He came eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. He came. The Romans were still in power. And he also said, and I'm going to die. 
well, then you can't be the Messiah because that's not the Messiah I want. Oh, we do the same thing with God, don't we? We get this idea that God is all loving, as I heard Ron Vietti say in his ridiculous exposition or so-called exposure of uh, Reformed theology. And over and over again, the only thing that they had to stand on was God is love. And John 3.16. And if you only can fit God into the God is love box, then what are you going to do when he reveals the justice of God? What box is that going to fit into? How will you fit your God of love into the God of wrath? How will you fit your God of love into the God of, and of course, mercy is there, grace is there. But if you only take the good, then how can you understand the full attribute of who God really is? And God is good. There is no bad in God. It's amazing how people will only allow themselves to believe in a God that makes them feel comfortable. When Jesus came, he gave testimony. They did not believe. He showed signs and wonders. They did not believe. He rose from the dead and people still did not believe. I don't know how much more evidence you need. But that's the character of faithless people. It doesn't matter what you show them. There are people, atheists, who say, if Jesus were to, okay, I'll believe if you just make him come on the stage right now. If Jesus Christ did that, they would even find another way to say it was an, it was an illusion. It didn't really happen because they are hard-hearted, faithless people. And that is natural for all believe, all unbelievers. Number three, the character of faithful people is this. And it's very simple. Verse 37. To the two disciples that heard him speak, they follow Jesus. This is how the gospel causes a person to respond. Look at me real quick. When you hear the truth, you respond to it by following Christ with all your heart. That is the, the character of a faithful person, that when you hear the gospel, when Christ has opened up your heart and opened up your eyes to see him for who he really is, the only real response to that is following Jesus with all your heart. That's easy. Nothing else matters. No one else matters. You leave it all behind and you follow him with all your heart because he owns your heart. No one else owns my heart. Nothing else can have my heart. He is that treasure that I found in the field and nothing else matters. That's what happens to a person who becomes a faithful follower of Christ. These are people that are marked by worship, worship of God, not of a man and not of a theology, but God. And they will find theology that worships God, that praises God. They're marked by laying down their lives to share the truth of the gospel with the world, knowing that they are forever passionate to share what Christ has done to them and for them when they deserve nothing. Let us be passionate about sharing the gospel. Don't believe the lie that says because you're reformed, you're not supposed to evangelize. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. I know that there's a lot of information out there. I want you to go look at it, find it, and then line it up with the scriptures. And remember, I've taught you. Look at things in context. See what God, what God is saying here and how it relates to the rest of the book. Be wise be diligent in your studies don't take one word and then just run with it and say this is what it means everywhere and be smart you've been taught better than that haven't you so let's go real quick and, and we'll finish here let's go to the first day the first group and the first emphasis now we're going to exegete each verse a delegation is sent to john and they're going to be the enemies of john 
They're the enemies of truth. They're the enemies of righteousness. They are the enemies of Christ even. And they go to John. This delegation is composed of priests and Levites. Some were also Pharisees. And they pose this question to John. First question is this. Who are you? Seems like a fair question, doesn't it? Who are you? I'm confused about you. Who are you? I've had a lot of people say, what are you? What are you? Baptist? Are you Presbyterian? I don't know. I don't know, Chris. I don't know what I am. I'm a follower of Christ right now, and we'll see what happens later. But it seems like a fair question. We think you're the Messiah. That's what they're saying. But we're confused because some things that we're expecting the Messiah to do, you're not doing. So who in the world are you? And John knows exactly what they're asking because his response reveals, I know what you mean. He says, I'm not the Messiah. Who are you? And he goes, I'm not him, dude. I'm not the one, right? I'm not the Christ. And the Bible says that not only did he deny it, but he confessed, which is essentially this. He is perturbed. He's bothered by them even asking, are you the Christ? He is so humble that even asking, are you the one, makes him mad. You kidding me? I'm, I'm not the. Why would you even ask me that stupid question? I'm not the one. I'm not the Messiah. That's how frustrated John the Baptist was. And I wouldn't mess with a dude who is walking around in camel's hair, eating wild locusts and honey and all that stuff. It's not me. Don't come bowing down to me. I'm not the one. And the interesting thing about the way he says it is in the Greek, the original way he says it is, it's not me, but he's here. Oh, I just, man, when I read that, I got goosebumps. I'm like, man, that's, how, how would that be to be there? He, and he understood his role. I, I'm not him, but he's here. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. He understood he's the, he's the subordinate. He's the forerunner of Christ. So, okay, you're not the Christ. Are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask him? Are you Elijah? Based on prophecy found in Malachi 3 and 4, the Jews were expecting uh, Elijah to literally appear before the Messiah returned to establish his earthly kingdom, they believed. As a matter of fact, and this is interesting because many of the Jewish people today, during Passover, they reserve a seat for Elijah. Because they think Elijah's going to come and he might want to come to their house and eat, you know, unleavened bread or whatever they eat. I don't know. Um, a kosher dog. Um, so they save a seat for Elijah to this day. Now, John and Elijah have a lot in common. Now, think about this or just hear this out. John's appearance was very much like Elijah. In Mark chapter one, verse six, they t- Mark tells us that John wore camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Second Kings one eight describes Elijah as a very hairy man. Who wore a leather belt around his waist? Matthew chapter two, John's call for repentance and warning people to come or the, of the coming judgment reminded the hearers of Elijah, who had a similar kind of ministry in first Kings. So when the question comes and says, are you Elijah? John the Baptist says, no. Now, now, now you got to think about this, OK, because everything he's doing, everything, uh, the way that he looks, the way that he's preaching is just like Elijah. They're, he's preaching about the Messiah coming. They're expecting Elijah. And they say, are you Elijah? And he goes, no. OK, now for are you the Messiah? I'm not the Messiah. No way. And they, are you Elijah? No. OK. I think John the Baptist and this is just me assuming I'm, I'm isogeting right now. 
I am assuming John the Baptist was getting a kick out of messing with these dudes on this question. Because he was being honest. I'm not literally uh, Elijah in the literal sense of, you know, the Elijah who was taken up in a whirlwind and I'm back from heaven. Here I am. I'm not literally him, if that's what you're asking. But they didn't say that. They just said, are you Elijah? So he took it as a literal sense. No. But in another sense, yes. But you didn't ask me, so I'm not going to answer. Right? It's almost as if he came, put on the Elijah suit, even though he's not actually Elijah, but was coming in the same spirit and power of Elijah. Matthew chapter 17, 10 says, and his disciples asked him, why did the scribes and why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they see that he's the Messiah and they say, so what was all this Elijah stuff about then? And Jesus responded and says, Elijah is coming and we'll restore all things. And we'll get into a deeper thing on that later. But he says, but I say to you, Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So the son of man is going to suffer at their hands as well. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Jesus saying, oh, he was here. That was John. And they got it. Oh, we knew it. We knew that was why he said no. And Jesus is like, no, yeah, that was him. He was not actually him, but again, he came in the same spirit and power of Elijah. What's that spirit? Spirit of the Lord. What's that power? It's the power of the Lord. And they both came and obeyed God in the same exact way. They were faithful preachers to what God had called them to do. Next question. Well, are you the prophet? He says, no. But this is another emphatic no. Who's the prophet? The question came from prophecy spoken by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And basically Moses is saying there's going to be a prophet who comes after him that is just like him, who declares to them the word of God. No other person fits that role than Christ. As a matter of fact, Peter in Acts chapter 3 and Stephen in Acts chapter 7 both affirm that, that prophet that they were speaking about, Moses spoke about, was Christ. There is no other candidate that would fit that role. So are you the prophet? No, I'm not the one. Again, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not your prophet. I'm nothing. I'm none of those things. Then who are you? Give us an answer. Tell us who you are so we can go tell the people who sent us again. Just I'm a voice. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. What a humble man. I mean, if there's one person, can you imagine sitting in the wilderness while John the Baptist is teaching before Christ even came? Can you imagine that you're John the Apostle and you got to roll with John the Baptist and Jesus? John the Apostle was a disciple of John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, there's the Messiah. John the Apostle left and fell with Jesus. This guy has given us some, some insight that very few people have. Only him and Andrew had this insight. I'm not the one. I'm no one. He goes on to say, and I, I just love his, his self-abasement, his bringing himself. It's like Paul. We all revere Paul. Paul is like the man when it comes to theology, except for Christ, obviously. And Paul says about himself, I'm the very least of all these saints. Of the apostles, I'm the lowest. I'm no one. Paul is bringing himself. And that is the character of a true believer. They don't want to be glorified. They keep bringing themselves down. Say, dude, this is all about Christ. These beautiful flowers, as soon as Melissa brought them up, she goes, dude, this is all for Jesus. That's awesome. That's the kind of character we want to have, that this is all for God. Give him glory. Give him praise. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
John's response, though, was more than a humble confession. It really was fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He said, as Isaiah 43 says, make straight the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist says, I'm the one doing that. That's why I'm here. I'm here to bring the message and prepare the hearts of people for the Messiah. Now, check this out. John was not just calling the place that he was living in the wilderness. He's calling the hearts of men a wilderness. He was not just living in the wilderness, but he was calling the hearts of men a wilderness. That there needed to be a preparation of the hearts of men to be done so that the path would be straight for the Messiah to come and bring the message of truth to them. Now, I heard that and just thought, wow, because John was really merely presenting himself as a laborer. He's out there tilling the ground and getting it ready for the king to make his way through. As we continue to prepare or go through this message, we're going to see that that is that's what we're all here for. Some are planting, some are watering, but God ultimately is going to give the increase. And I trust that even with people who left this church, I'm praying for them still, that God would work on their heart, that God would help them to see the truth of what really gives him glory. They've been set from the Pharisees again. That's the Sanhedrin. And they asked him, why then are you baptizing? And he says, I'm baptizing with water. And then he points it back to Christ and says, but there's one who stands among you. Now I can imagine this crowd of people. And, and they're, they're all talking to him. And then all of a sudden, John says, yeah, I baptize with water, but there's someone standing among you. And I, and I don't know if you ever played like a video game. My, one of my favorite games is Assassin's Creed and the guy wears a coat or like a hood. I can imagine just Jesus like standing in the background and just walking away like he's there. You don't see him. You don't notice him, but he's among you. And he goes on to say, but you don't know him. And Jesus kind of hears and just like, OK, it's about time to get this thing going. It's about time to start this. And his emphasis was simple. Get ready because the Messiah is here. He's among you. You don't know him, but he's here. As a matter of fact, John even goes on later to say, I didn't even know him. I didn't even know him until he was revealed to me. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking, my cousin, like what? Uh, But yeah, John didn't even know. John, knowing that Jesus or the Messiah is somewhere standing and he continues on to say, he's greater than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. You don't know him, but he's here. And that prophecy of him speaking, that was 600 years old. And they were waiting for that moment. It is a wonderful thing even to speak about these things to this day. I feel like I'm in that desert right now with him as he's saying those things. The transformation that was going to take place was not political, economic, military, It was going to be a spiritual transformation of the hearts that was going to take place in men and women. And we echo those words of John today, that the Messiah is coming. He's coming. Don't harden your hearts as the children of Israel did and cause them to wander in the desert. The Messiah is coming. And very soon, I believe, he's going to break through the sky and take home all the believing ones. And I believe that we will have this time of rejoicing or there's going to be a time of rejoicing and celebrating forever after that. We may differ on the post, the pre, the um, all that kind of stuff. But one thing we all agree on is he's coming. He's coming. And I pray that your hearts are ready 
for that great appearance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Next time that we gather, we're going to look at day two and day three. This is interesting because we don't have anything like this in Scripture besides the Passion Week where we see consecutive days and what happened in those days. But we're going to find out what happens day two next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. It is to you and to you alone that we give all of the praise and honor and glory to. Lord, we humble ourselves before you and your word. We humble ourselves, Lord, before the only one who is worthy of us bowing down and glorifying. Lord, I pray that you give us grace, give us strength, give us patience. And Lord, give me even patience as I teach through these lessons. It's a very different thing to teach narratives, but I pray that you would give me the strength to do so and to do so faithfully to your word. Lord, I thank you that you will give us all strength and all trust that your word is absolutely true. Lord, help us not to rely on human wisdom or human intuition, but help us to rely solely on your word. And Lord, I pray that you give us all discernment and wisdom from your spirit to understand the truth of your holy word. We thank you for this. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.